We cannot change the past, but we can and must do everything in our power to help you build a future without fear. Western governments and the United Nations were allowing this to happen for reasons of Cold War politics. But could and should the UN have done more before the killing and burning started? The UN, he says, they did absolutely nothing to protect us. Hi, my name is Olivia Houston. And I'm Angelie Takor, and this is Never Again Again. So on today's episode, we want to talk about a phenomenon of the 20th and 21st century known as genocide denial. I think before we get into it, why don't we give our readers um, some background on what genocide denial is and what it looks like? Absolutely. So I think first we can think about genocide denial as this form of lying in which people deliberately distort the facts for the sum sake of a presumed advantage. Mm -hmm. And often what historians will describe genocide denial as is this final stage of genocide Mm -hmm. in which the complete and total annihilation of a person is this banishment of recollection and the suffocation of remembrance of things like the Holocaust. I think it's really interesting that they characterize it as like this last stage of genocide, but um, it almost suggests that genocide denial is a part of the process of genocide. A continuation. Exactly. And I think genocide deniers kind of seek to avoid these, you know, what they perceive as external threats, for example, you know, payments or reparations to victims. And it kind of carries on this process of rejecting and dehumanizing the victim um, in the name of, you know, justifying the genocide that was perpetrated against them. Yeah. And I think we see an overwhelming association with this, with the Holocaust. Definitely. Um, especially, you know, in the 1960s when there's this resurgence of information surrounding the mm-hmm. Holocaust. This kind of interconnected network, you know, throughout the world starts in this attempt to kind of justify the Nazi regime and yeah. to, you know almost continue the anti-Semitism process as well Definitely. through the, er- the erasing of the memory of um, the killings against Jews. And I think that um, genocide deniers also definitely look to kind of it, like absolve responsibility mm-hmm. um, of the perpetrators um, in the past. And that's extremely dangerous because part of the justification for, you know, the international responsibility to punish um, crimes of genocide is to kind of set a precedent in order to deter um, future perpetrators from carrying out the same crime. And when, you know, that precedent is not upheld or um, people have the ability to kind of absolve um, the perpetrators Mm -hmm. of that responsibility, it kind of leads people to think that they can get away with um, carrying out genocide again. Yeah, that's really frightening, the idea that Genocide denial, you know, enables and increases the risk of future outbreaks of genocide. Yeah, and that kind of it seems like the same populations are vulnerable, you know, mm-hmm. because it's like you said, it's kind of a continuation of um, the violence that was perpetrated against these target groups. Yeah, so there is a couple of tactics that mm-hmm. genocide deniers use um in order to propagate these myths. Um, so you want to describe yeah. some of them for the audience? I think the first one that definitely comes to mind is kind of like minimizing the death toll mm. or the victims of the genocide or the number of victims of the genocide. Um, they argue that, oh, you know, these numbers are exaggerated. They're born out of, you know, insufficient physical evidence. And as we know, historians definitely, you know, deal with physical evidence. They look through archives. Um, they look for 
DNA sequences and just kind of, you know, these genocide deniers try to identify shortcomings Mm -hmm. in the physical evidence in order to kind of draw support away from um, the claims that historians are making. Yeah, and I think these are most common and most popular with Mm -hmm. the Holocaust. So people will employ the technique of saying it's 6,000 deaths, not 6 million. Mm -hmm. You know, Auschwitz didn't exist. Gas chambers were not used. And you were talking about these historians who are not only trying to, you know, deny the existence of this evidence in the archives, but also they sometimes pose themselves as pseudo-historians themselves and falsify evidence to help legitimize their claims. Exactly. And, you know, they look to kind of borrow the reputation that legitimate historians have, you know, Mm -hmm. by presenting themselves as credible academics um, in their fields. And that kind of, you know, tricks people like us into believing them. Yeah. You know, like um, if you're presented as a historian who has conducted research and written papers, more often than not, that lends your voice authority. Absolutely. Right. Um, Another attempt or technique that genocide deniers use is kind of an attempt to like mitigate the actual effects of the genocide or Mm -hmm. what happened during the genocide. So I think like people will claim it was self-defense, you know, maybe if it spans from something like a civil war, there was like a total culture of violence. So by universalizing this guilt, right, no one is truly guilty. Exactly. And, you know, we see that even today, labeling um, target groups as terrorists Mm -hmm. or that they're the perpetrators and we're just trying to, you know, restore stability and protect civilian populations. Right. And just very much carrying this dehumanizing language Mm -hmm. in order to make um, violence committed against these groups, you know, more acceptable. Yeah, and I think probably the most interesting, at least to me, form that or technique genocide deniers use is this idea that we would never do that. Mm -hmm. You know, they have this idealized concept of themselves or of the government that they think it's pure and democratic, and that means that they couldn't possibly commit these, you know, mass atrocities. I feel like um, Arthur Kessler's uh, 1944 essay, The Nightmare That Is Reality, which we looked at in class recently, definitely kind of hits hits on that idea. You know, he argues that even though facts of the Holocaust have been published in Mm -hmm. newspapers, pamphlets, brochures, there's still this conscious disbelief there's this block in people's head because they think like you said like our government or the nazi government would never do that Mm -hmm. it's just you know they don't believe in the human capacity for atrocity which is very damaging it has you know it's not something to be admired no because it leads to this disbelief that kind of enables genocide to occur and it's not even just this innocent notion of like our country wouldn't do that but sometimes it's like this deep um you know collective pathological narcissism Mm -hmm. this this visualization of superiority definitely and perhaps in a way like this superiority enables and allows and justifies these genocidal acts definitely yeah or like you said this very elevated view of one's own nation that um is definitely more narcissistic in its um, nature. Yeah. So I think for this episode of the podcast, we're going to focus a lot on this court case um, between infamous Holocaust denier David Irving and um, uh, Emory professor and historian Deborah Lipsat. Yeah. So um, 
I think at stake, it's important to recognize that um, in this trial, what was at stake was not just the actual truth of the Holocaust, but the quality and nature of um, pseudo-historian David Irving's historiography. So this court case was tried in London um, from January to March 2001. And like you said, Lipstadt was a history professor mm -hmm. who had written, among other works, a 1993 book on Holocaust denial called um, Denying the Holocaust, The Growing Assault on Truth and Memory. And um, interestingly, actually, she's now been appointed as the anti-Semitism envoy under the current Biden administration, Very cool. which is spectacular. And on the other side was David Irving, who was this Holocaust denier. And um, he was also the author of books on Nazi Germany, including um, Hitler's War. And interestingly, he was actually, um, before this court case, of course, he was perceived as a very successful, popular historian who specialized um, in writing about um, Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. And a number of leading historians, including, for example, Hugh Trevor Roper, actually took him very seriously and praised his research. Yeah. Um, so in her book, uh, Lipstadt describes Irving as a Holocaust denier. Um, and he, she, as like a, she identifies him as this discredited scholar. And so David Irving sees this and he's, he sues Deborah Lipstadt for libel. I think, um, you know, one quote from this court case that just kind of has been like seared into my memory is um, Irving calling the Holocaust a myth or a legend that was based on baloney. I know. Like how I, <laughs> how I, can't I don't even have the words. It. No. Um, so the, you know, it, it really it, it breaks, you know, the boundaries of I our know. brain. Um, but the trial itself, it went on for 32 days without a foregone conclusion. Um, and Lipstadt and Penguin's legal team was headed by the solicitor, Anthony Julius. Um, and something that we think is interesting mm -hmm. about this team is that they refused to put any Auschwitz survivors in the witness box because they didn't want to have to prove the notion. They didn't feel like they needed to prove the notion that the of the Holocaust. Definitely. Existence. And I think in some ways that's what... Irving maybe wanted the court case to become, mm -hmm. you know, because it provided him a platform to kind of discredit the claims of these Auschwitz survivors. Right. Right. And I think um, Lipstadt said, you know, we did not want to put a survivor in the witness box to be cross-examined by a man whose motives we assumed would be to humiliate them mm -hmm. and to confuse them. I think that um, really speaks to kind of how to engage or not engage with yeah. Holocaust deniers very um difficult line to draw definitely um so in the end there was a 355 page judgment mm -hmm. um in april of 2000 and it found that lipstadt had not libeled irving mm -hmm. um it he was incontrovertibly declared a holocaust denier and his comments during the trial only confirmed that he was an anti-semite and a racist and the trial definitely played a role in destroying any remaining reputation that he had um, and he actually declared bankruptcy in 2002 because he was unable to pay the estimated two million pounds mm. um, in legal fees and fines. And um, he was actually arrested in Austria in 2005, where Holocaust denial is a crime and was sentenced to three years in jail. Yeah. But, you know, the crazy thing about people like David Irving is that they're still working. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's about to release a book on Heinrich Himmler claiming he has new archival evidence. Um, but as we know from his track record, he is a revisionist who is using 
propagating false information, mm-hmm. perhaps false evidence that he's created himself. And that's a very scary thought. I feel like quite common among, um, you know, genocide deniers who kind of represent themselves as historians is the use of this word revisionist. Yeah. Because it implies, you know, like this kind of non-mainstream view, right. you know, that they're kind of looking back and offering like a, you know, devil's advocate like perspective which I feel like as a society, we really, like, respect without examining what they're saying. Absolutely. Because we're like, oh, you know, he's going against the mainstream. He can think for himself. He's Absolutely. not been brainwashed. And it's like, no, you know? He's like, doing the brainwashing. Exactly. In, in certain matters where, you know, human rights violations are at stake or it's genocide or crimes against humanity, there is no space for an alternate perspective. No. And there shouldn't be. Exactly. Um, And I think to help us understand these issues further, um, we're going to bring in um, specialist on the Holocaust, um, Professor Wendy Lauer of Claremont McKenna College. Wendy Lauer is an American historian, professor, and author who specializes in the Holocaust, women's history, and comparative genocide studies. Currently, she is the John K. Roth Professor of History and Director of the Magrublian Center for Human Rights at Claremont McKenna College. Professor Lauer also serves as the chair of the Academic Committee of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Professor Lauer is the author of several influential books in her field, including Nazi Empire Building and the Holocaust in Ukraine, Hitler's Furies, German Women in the Nazi Killing Fields, and most recently, The Ravine, A Family, A Photograph, A Holocaust Massacre Revealed. It's our pleasure to welcome Professor Lauer onto our podcast to discuss genocide denial and more specifically, the infamous case of Holocaust denial between Deborah Lipstadt and David Irving. Our first question is, could you describe what genocide denial is and some of the psychological underpinnings behind it? Genocide denial uh, actually takes on many different forms. It's essentially an attempt to, um, on the one hand, in its, its least um, egregious way uh, to kind of whitewash or or obfuscate or diminish you know the history of of genocide um, and the fact that genocide happened to a particular group um, it really developed um, well it started in many ways in, with the case of the Armenian genocide in the early 20th century um, but it has kind of flourished um, in the world of Holocaust studies um, for, for various reasons which we can talk about but it's an attempt to, to um, undo history, to falsify history, to negate um, the very fact that an entire community, whether it's the Armenians in Turkey or Jews in Europe, um, were annihilated systematically in a, in a campaign of total destruction. So one of the most infamous cases of genocide denial is between Deborah Lipstadt and David Irving. Um, can you kind of describe who David Irving is and what his positioning was on the Holocaust? Sure. Um, let me first back up before I get into the specifics of that case, just for our audience, to give them a sense of what Holocaust or what denial kind of looks like. So those who want to um, negate this history of, of, of the Holocaust or of the Armenian Genocide, they take, they pursue it in a variety of ways. And it's important to be aware of this um, because it is all around us and in many ways the society we live in today um, is cultivating this even more, is creating a kind of environment in which this this can flourish because we live in this post-factual kind of post-truth society, we live in the digital age, 
Um, anyone can go into the internet and change Wikipedia or set up a, a, what looks like a scholarly outfit and make certain claims and, and give the impression that what they're doing is, you know, quote-unquote serious research. And that's pretty much what, what David Irving did. He was um, an imposter, you know, he was kind of a charlatan. He was posing as a scholar and many people kind of took him seriously as a scholar uh, in the um, um, 70s, including when he started to write these studies of biographies of Hitler and Goering and Goebbels and the leaders of the Nazi regime. But when one looks more closely at this kind of pseudo-scholarship and looks at the footnotes and looks at the arguments and the logic of those arguments, um, one starts to uncover um, the fallaciousness of them, the, um, uh, the falsification of evidence, the uses, use of forgeries, mm -hmm. um, and all kinds of tricks as far as logic to try to uh, see doubt in history so that students or people who aren't as, don't have the time to really study this, this history closely, if they have any um, uh, sense, any kind of belief that, that maybe this didn't happen, maybe the Holocaust didn't happen because it's such an enormous event, that uh, one of the, historically, one of the issues with the response to the Holocaust, going back to the one that was actually transpiring, was disbelief, comprehension, because the thought of six million Jews or the thought of gassing facilities that are used to kill people in an industrial way, the mm -hmm. thought of that happening in the heart of Europe in, and being conducted by a kind of civilized German society, so many of these things really defied our imagination and our sense of humanity that just believing that it happened um, was one of the hurdles. And deniers like to pick on that, um, that very, that they kind of um, uh, like that opening, that opportunity as they would see it, to prey on people's sense of disbelief because this history is, is um, so uh, unique and so shocking. Um, so genocide deniers engage in these kinds of um, manipulation of evidence. They present themselves as scholars in the way that David Irving did. Um, they participate in the cover-up of the genocide. It's actually happening when the genocide's happening. When the genocide is occurring, the perpetrators try to obfuscate it by using euphemisms, by destroying all the evidence of the Holocaust, destroying the traces of the mass murder. Um, so there is always, on the part of those who want to commit these kinds of crimes, or in the case of the Holocaust, if they're anti-Semitic and they want that history um, not to give too much attention to the Jews, as it were, or um, somehow empower them with this history or admit to their suffering in any way. Um, if those are the motives and those are the, um, uh, that's the, those are the beliefs of, of those anti-Semites, um, they're going to, in, in many ways, continue the work of the perpetrators by um, engaging this kind of cover-up and this kind of uh, repression of this history. Uh, it started really with those who said they were revisionists. That's what David Irving said. He's a British scholar. He went to the University of College um, London. Um, he was born in 1938. His father was in the um, British uh, Air Force. So he was, he grew up kind of around the, the war and the history of the war. Um, when that case that he mounted against Deborah Lipstadt went to trial, um, more of his biography came out. In fact, um, really shocking um, uh, revelations about his deep racism and deep anti-Semitism. Um, and so um, this basically what happened was Deborah Lipstadt, who is an historian at Emory University, um, she published a very important 
book um, Denying the Holocaust, and she identified this phenomenon of denial, and she was able to analyze it as hardcore denials, the whole spectrum of denial, and the, the logic of it, and the uh, manifestations of it, and looked at it systematically, and was the first person to really do that. And so um, she identified David Irving as a denier. She looked at his book um, on um, Hitler's war from the 1970s, where David Irving argues that Hitler didn't know about the Holocaust, and if he knew about it, he wouldn't have approved it. I mean, it's just absolutely uh, preposterous claims. Um, and she realized that he was a fraud um, and was uh, wanted the rest of the academic community to be aware of that because people were actually citing his work and they thought he was legitimate. Um, well, he then charged her with libel. So he, David Irving, ends up um, suing um, Deborah Lipstadt and Penguin, her publisher, for this, um, li these what he calls libelous statements about him being a denier. So he's trying to salvage his reputation and thinks he's going to win this court case, um, and he didn't. Um, what are some of the implications of genocide denial on reconciliation and achieving justice in um, post-genocide societies? Um, genocide denial actually is dangerous because it subverts that very process. Mm -hmm. So if, if a society is going to try to recover from these events, um, certain things need to take place. At least there are things that we've identified in, uh, in the last decades as helpful, certain possibilities depending on, on the case. Um, first of all, there, need to be, there needs to be a sense of justice that's achieved against the perpetrators and things should go, you know, come into the courtroom and those, those killers should be held accountable, there should be consequences, survivors should also have their day in court as far as expressing, you know, publicly if they're able to what happened to them and get it on the record as fact, as, as truth and get, it, um, get their testimony on record. Holocaust deniers like to take the uh, court records and the testimonies of survivors First of all, they say survivors aren't remembering everything completely accurately, and that's another conversation because victims, of course, who undergo trauma and Holocaust victims who were, for instance, told never to look a German in the eye, it's going to be difficult for a Holocaust survivor to actually identify and finger point as a perpetrator. But again, deniers like to find these very, you know, um, these openings um, and, 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 and blow them out of proportion to see that kind of doubt and to argue that these trials are shams, that it's victor's justice. They would say that the Nuremberg trials were all victor's justice and try to degrade our notion of truth, fact, and the rule of law mm -hmm. and justice. Um, deniers will uh, also, it's, it's another assault on, on our memory because, um, and, and on history because the counter version, the so-called alternative version that they present, um, then you know, detracts from the work that needs to be done. So if there's a book that David Irving writes that creates a completely different portrait of Hitler and it's out there in the public realm, I as an historian would then spend a lot of time, right, potentially trying to argue that he was wrong and trying to pick apart his evidence. And, you know, in many ways that's important because you want to identify when somebody is um, engaging in falsehoods. But it's also taking time away from me to do work <laughs> on the history itself of what actually happened. So you know, scholars respond to this in different ways, but in that way they, um, they uh, undermine our um, pursuit of this research 
and deepening of knowledge on the very subject matter. Yeah, when we when you speak about research, I think something interesting than like the position of David Irving is that um, he might like neo Nazis might be more sympathetic to discuss certain issues or like specific information with him. So, if he were to publish a book and had like specific information that perhaps like the rest of the communities didn't know, how would you go about obtaining that information or distinguishing fact from from um, what David Irving is kind of creating? Um, so what's the difference between how I do research and how David Irving no, does like research? If, is David Irving able to obtain like information that we can't because people are more uh, sympathetic to his cause, like his pro, you know, promotion mm -hmm. of the Nazi party? Yes, so David Irving, one of the um, uh, interesting parts about his whole approach um, and how he kind of distinguished himself was that he befriended a lot of Nazi perpetrators. Right. And he then would get access to their private papers or he would interview them. And then he, so, but he then had a kind of, then he could control that information because he was only privy to it. It mm -hmm. wasn't in a public archive. So then he could, he could footnote those interviews or present those, you know, memoirs or, or secret private papers of a former perpetrator. But if I didn't have that special access, I couldn't challenge that. So it would kind of, you know, he would create this kind of um, uh, his own special archive, right? But, but what is that? And it turns out that a lot of it was, you know, fabricated and distorted, and this was all um, determined in the trial itself when mm -hmm. they examined his work very closely, footnote by footnote. Um, and the judge, you know, ruled that he was, in fact, a, he was not a historian. Um, right. So, yeah, this, this is definitely an issue. And I have a, actually a, um, a kind of a personal uh, encounter with this um, in my own work. Um, uh, David Irving, uh, I've, I have uh, sat next to him in the archives at the Holocaust Museum. It's a public space. You know, they couldn't ban him from doing work there. Um, but there he was, you know, at the microfilm reader, and I was—I had just shown up to do my work there, and um, of course there was a buzz in, uh, uh, around the archives in the library because he was there, and nobody wanted to, you know, assist him in any way. Um, so he's, you know, he's allowed to do this work, um, and um, a lot of countries have uh, denier anti-Holocaust denier laws that it's a crime, right? Like, so David Irving was imprisoned in Austria uh, for a while. Um, uh, because of uh, anti, you know, Holocaust um, statements of, about the Holocaust not happening that he'd made, and they, you know, found that so um, offensive, um, and it falls under the category of a kind of incitement of violence or a hate speech. Mm. Um, so they are allowed to circulate. I mean, I've been at scholarly conferences when um, individuals I knew uh, who were Holocaust deniers were in the back uh, row, you know, listening to me give a paper. Um, they're to learn and they're to intimidate. And they take that information that they learn in those conferences and they kind of recycle it um, into their own work, their, their bogus revisionist work. They, they have so-called scholarly journals and they um, uh, uh, portray themselves as scholars. Um, one of the perpetrators I interviewed in Germany uh, in 2008, uh, 2009, and uh, close to about the time when David Irving was in jail in Austria, um, he had in his private collections uh, letters from David Irving. David Irving had visited him and gone through his private uh, archives and, and um, documents, this, um, this old Nazi outside of Frankfurt. Um, so Irving's, you know, he's, um, 
consorting with these old Nazis, taking some of their staff, um, which is also uh, dangerous for the field because those things, a lot of that material should be in archives. Um, and then once he possesses it, uh, he's able to then um, put it into his so-called scholarship and, and make these um, bogus claims about the Holocaust. Claims that, you know, deniers make every, from, from one end of the spectrum hardcore that it didn't happen to, you know, minimizing the numbers of Jews who were killed, saying that there were no gassing facilities, that people just died in concentration camps, but they were like any other concentration camps, that deportation didn't mean death, that they just um, were, were kind of worked to death but not gassed. Um, you know, that, that uh, again, victim testimony is not to be trusted, so not acknowledging the victims um, and their trauma. Uh, so they, this is, these are kind of some of the approaches that they take to be aware of. Um, you mentioned how in your work you've come across um, genocide deniers. So what recommendations do you have for how to approach a situation involving a genocide denier? I agree with Deborah Lipstadt as far as uh, being clear when the falsehoods are being propagated. Mm -hmm. If you find this in the literature um, and you're reading accounts that are, you know, it's interesting, they have a certain tone, they're, they're cynical. They, uh, they take the tone of an intellectual critique, but they go in the direction, again, of seeding doubt, um, of, of demonstrating very little empathy on the part of the victims, and um, uh, shifting the focus to the poor Germans or the poor perpetrators and what was put upon them, um, and how they were kind of backed into a corner. Um, uh, and, and you know, and in fact, you know, it was the victims who were the agents of the destruction, and or the, in the case of the Holocaust, it was the Allies who bombed Dresden and so forth. These kinds of false equivalencies. So, as a scholar, you always look for good critical histories um, that often revise what we think we know. But then you look a little bit more closely, and you see kind of what their underlying motive is of that scholar, or the patterns that emerge in their scholarship that are very, very ideological. And I think we have to, uh, as scholars, identify that um, on, on the one hand, because that's part of our ethical obligation to being a good historian, being a good trained historian. Um, but I do not want to give people like David Irving or, um, or Butts out at Northwestern University, who's still on the faculty, or I think he's retired, but he was never um, denied tenure, uh, or his tenure was never revoked, Arthur Butts. Um, is another prominent denier here in the United States. But um, I wouldn't get on a stage with any of these individuals and get into a debate with them um, because it's not uh, an even, you know, you're not on even footing with them as far as their um, agenda. Um, they're not uh, dedicated to truth and to scholarship and, uh, you know, so it's, it's really um, giving them too much uh, airtime, too much visibility. So Lauer's interview gave us a lot of things to think about, mm -hmm. but perhaps the most interesting or compelling thing to me was this idea of the fabricating of information by deniers. Mm -hmm. I think she, um, she definitely spoke to David Irving's approach to research. Mm -hmm. And I think in our last episode, we kind of compared and contrasted a journalist's approach versus an academic's approach. And I think um, Lauer's discussion on Irving's approach kind of like built on our knowledge of that. 
Um, she mentioned how he kind of like befriended Nazi perpetrators in order to obtain access to like their personal papers and journals. And then he was able to kind of present these papers and memoirs as like new information. Mm -hmm. And therefore he had like total control and monopoly over the release of that information and kind of what he cherry picked from, um, you know, those uh, firsthand accounts and etc. And what's so scary is that when you have the power and control over information, there's an inability for other historians to go in and challenge Definitely. That. And when they do go in, it's almost they're they're almost like on unequal footing, mm-hmm. right? Because Irving is in total control of this quote unquote new information that he has not, you know, made public or allowed other historians to discredit or criticize. Yeah, and I think this takes us into a broader discussion of how should scholars engage with mm-hmm. deniers? You know, should they go in and take the time to do the research to respond to deniers? Should they go foot by footnote by footnote, analyzing their sources, taking time away from doing, you know, credible and yeah, authentic research? Yeah, I think that's the thing. Like that, doing that just you know waste so much of their own time mm-hmm. and might not even be what they're interested in doing or why they got into the field in the first place. I think also on the other side, there's this question, you know, do historians have this duty or obligation to mm-hmm. expose deniers in order to maintain the integrity of their field and prevent um, civilians from accessing this falsified information? Like, is that an inherent responsibility of the historian? Yeah. And you know, I think there's different ways you can go about mm-hmm. that responsibility. You know, it doesn't have to be going in with it, going in on an interview with another, you know, genocide denier and engaging in it in a conversation with them because that gives them a platform to De- speak. Yeah, but it could be something like Deborah Lipstadt did in her book, um, "Denying the Holocaust," where she just identified Irving as a denier, mm-hmm. um, and she was saying talking about his process and his falsification of evidence and how this creates doubt in history. Definitely. But, like, on the other hand, you know, that still led to this lengthy court case that definitely drew her away from the important work that she was doing Mm -hmm. in the field of Holocaust research. And I think it, um, you know, definitely also raises questions about free speech, Mm -hmm. right? And whether, like, um, we were talking about earlier how in Austria... Holocaust denial is actually a crime, Mm -hmm. right? So I think there's definitely a fine line between, you know, respecting everyone's right to free speech and, um, you know, allowing the propagation of genocide denial discourse. Yeah, and countries take it on differently. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no clear consensus that people have come to, you know, with the United States and their, you know, this heightened notion of freedom of speech, there's more of a permissive spectrum. And we can see this with, you know, neo-Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. But then in places like Austria or in places like Canada, there's a much harsher line that's driven. So, for example, if we look at Jim Keekstra, mm-hmm. he was a professor in Canada and he kind of indoctrinated his students with these Jewish conspiracies surrounding the Holocaust. And in response, you know, the Canada, you know, they dismissed him from his job and they charged him with promoting racial hatred. And then they later sentenced him to almost five months in jail and fined him for $5,000. I feel like the fact that he was a teacher is especially noteworthy when mm-hmm. you think of the influence that teachers have, you know, over their students' like worldviews. Absolutely. You know, especially in middle school and high school when you're still very much 
forming, you know, um, your own opinions about the world and understanding how historical events have shaped um, contemporary times. Mm -hmm. That's just so scary to think of the kind of power a teacher has in having the ability to spread false information like that. Yeah, and it's just, you know, David Irving, the power to control information, you know, the power over the youth Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how they think about these issues, mm-hmm. these critical, you know, things that shouldn't be critical issues, things that should be undeniably truthful. Yeah. And yet they are. And that's really terrifying. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, and I don't, I don't know how to reconcile with that. I know. I think that, you know, quite a big takeaway, I think, from everything that we've learned over the duration of this episode is the need to fact check mm. and not being overly reliant on one source mm-hmm. of information you know it's so easy for us to just kind of read one article by this one author that we've never heard of and then take everything in it as fact yeah. right and I think that's definitely something that people like Irving like monopolize on our tendency to do that yeah and I think it's something that you know once we're made aware of we can be more conscious in not doing that and I think it just only becomes easier in this modern age. Like mm-hmm. Professor Lauer was talking about this, but there's like this, we're cultivating an environment where genocide denial can flourish mm-hmm. because we live in this digital age where people can go in and alter Wikipedia articles yeah. with whatever they want. Exactly. You don't need to have the um, credentials, you no. know, to go in and create information. And when we kind of, take things at their face value for example like you were saying like an article on wikipedia you know which i think is a lot of people's go-to for quick tidbits of information but it's so easy for someone to go in and change the number of deaths or change the name of perpetrators right and there's almost no way to hold them accountable because everything is done anonymously Mm -hmm. right yeah and i also think um with the rise of the internet we've kind of seen this growth in the neo-Nazi movement because it's kind of enabled them to construct this coalition or network um, even when they're living in very different places. Right. We've seen them pop up in the U.S., we've seen them pop up in Europe, we've even seen them pop up in Asia, you know, like defacing memorials, mm-hmm. statues. And because of the internet, they're all a lot more interconnected than we want them to be. Yeah. And, you know, in a broader discussion of just the idea of social media, Mm -hmm. um, you know, perpetration of bad information, but also like this activism Mm -hmm. from social media, you know, there's so many ways in which it can be beneficial to unite people, um, you know, against corrupt governments, but also to, you know, proliferate these corrupt governments. Um, And I think, you know, the discussion on social media, again, goes back to this not using social media as your only point of information. Yeah. I definitely think um, social media as a tool um, has potential to kind of educate people in some sure. kind of way or shape or form. But I think it's important not to solely rely on the posts you see on your feed or on people's stories. Absolutely. For your information about world events and kind of, you know, think about them yourself. <laughs> yeah. And I guess we'll leave you you with that to think about definitely um and we just want to thank you so much for listening to we our really podcast. appreciate you taking the time to listen to us and we'd like to give a special thanks to the keck center for international and strategic studies for sponsoring this episode and a special thank you to professor apple jones and lauer for their guidance and mentorship well we'll see you next episode thank you